So I'm going to put somebody on the spot real quick because we weren't really going to do this, but I think it's important. And so I'm going to put Julia on the spot just a little bit because a few weeks ago we had our, we do a prayer time about once a month where we just kind of share needs and concerns and joys and triumph and pray over those as a community. And, and, and sometimes because we only do it really once a month, um, it, the, the sort of move of God gets lost in the process. But Julia Graham, who we prayed for last week, that God would kind of give her a new working opportunity in terms of employment. Um, I, I did something great. So, Julie, I'm going to let you tell everybody real quickly just what it did, and I'll repeat it. So, yeah, Julie's super pope because she said, I'm always raising my hand going, I need this or God do this. But, man, God moved to me. She got a brand new job, and she's super excited. We've been praying for that. So, we'll give the Lord a big hand because God is super awesome. You know, one of the great things about being a, a community of our size is that we get to share each other's joys and struggles and triumphs. And sometimes we, in the middle of our needs and concerns, and I'm doing this and I'm struggling with that, and God, I need you to relieve this tension or this pressure, we fail to always lift up, man, God is at, he's moving and he's working among us. And so taking time to just celebrate these little small things that are big to some of us, but you know, may seem small to others, are huge moments in our community. So being able to see that we prayed for that, God moved um, is really awesome. So, big part of who we are. So, if you want to visit with Julie afterwards, I'm sure she'd like to tell you how awesome the Lord is. So, um, man, what a blessing it is to have everybody here this morning and really continue this journey in the book of James. We started this, well, well we're now about ankle deep into this kind of journey, and, and it's going to take us a while. It's not going to be a, a quick one, it's going to be a verse by verse walkthrough this book, and really the entry point that I keep saying to the study is this, and, and that's that I find myself personally a lot of times living in the middle, in the middle of, of inconsistency, in the middle of mediocrity, just kind of with my faith and my heart and my life, feeling like that I'm just sort of bogged down in the middle, that I know that God has more for me, I know that God is calling me to more, but for some reason I'm, I'm, I'm content and I'm happy with living just where I am. And, and I'm, I'm getting tired of that. And so as I began to read the book of James, I began to realize that God's call on our life was so much more. That when we come face to face with who God is and who he says we are, it challenges us to step out of the mediocrity and out of the inconsistency and begin to live authentic, the authentic life that God has called us to. And so we've kind of used that background to kind of step into this series. And really the picture is, is that if you find yourself at all like me saying, you know, I just... I feel like my, my spiritual life is mediocre, and my heart is mediocre, my, my life is inconsistent. I know that God has me more, that when we gaze into his perfect law, the perfect truth, we see that God is calling us to something much more amazing because of what he did for us and who he says we are. So over the course of this series, we're using that as our backdrop to say, what would it look like if we lived an authentic life, a life that really understood what Jesus did for us, and then that, what that causes us to want to do, or how we're going to live. We're not going to spend a lot of recapping each week. You know, if you want to go back and listen to the message online, you can. Or if you want to read the book of James and kind of discover. But each week I'll give you a little bit, of, just a little snippet of what we did the week before. Because, you know, when you begin to study a book all in one kind of linear fashion, it's important to know where you've come from so that you can understand what you're reading. These are not isolated truths. A lot of times we, we proof text in, in Scripture. We open a, a, the Bible and we find a verse and we say, man, that, that verse is good. And we don't read all the things around it to realize sort of the depth 
and significance that it carries. Well, last week we really talked about this idea of perspective, and really, really we talked about eternal perspective, that our natural inclination as sinners, as sinful people, will be to have a worldly perspective. We will tend to see things in the temporary. We will tend to see things from the worldly perspective. But, but as followers of Christ, we are called to see the world with an eternal perspective, to understand that in times of struggle and in times of, of great blessing, God is present, and that we should be able to see Jesus in everything, at every moment, at every time. And that we're usually so fixated on the here and that now and the temporary and the desire for relief from the stresses and burdens in our life that we fail to see that God is right there in the middle of them. So building off that idea, for the past two weeks, James has kind of, the first part of chapter one is really an exploration of these things in the middle of the idea of stress and trial and temptation. He frames that in the first few verses of this book where he says, you know, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, when the testing of your faith develops perseverance, right? So James's backdrop for this first part of this book is really about How do we live and think and see the world and see our lives in the middle of stress and trial and temptation and struggle, right? How do we live in the middle of that? So it's important that James has not moved out of that kind of of reference point yet, and it's going to be the backdrop for what we look at this morning as well. What does life look like when we're living in struggle, when everything's not going super well, when there are tensions and when there are you know, kind of temptations to go this way or do that way or see the world from a worldly point of view, how do we begin to really live in the middle of all that? Because the natural byproduct for us, or for me, and I think for all of us with our sinful nature, the natural byproduct of a sort of living in trials and struggles and having a worldly kind of perspective is stress and anxiety and fear. That's a natural byproduct when we live in stress and trials and we have our worldly perspective is that my byproduct is is a life of stress and a life of anxiety and a life of fear. And I believe that those things um, lead us to think differently, um, to live differently, and even treat people differently. And that leads to a life of inconsistency. And a life of inconsistency is one that says, God, I love you, and Jesus, I trust you, but my life doesn't reflect reflect those things. In fact, I find myself... Um, doing things and, and thinking things and treating people in ways that I know is inconsistent with the truth of God because there's external pressures on my life. So how in the middle of stri- or trials and struggles and temptations do we live a consistent life that says, Jesus, my inside and my outside reflect your glory all the time? And that's where we're going to be today. We're going to be looking at this sort of picture of, of living beyond the inconsistent and into a life that God has called us to live. So we're going to be continuing in the book of James today. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and pull it out, chapter 1. If you don't have one, there's kind of Bibles strewn all over the place. Just pick one up. And I always just simply say this. If you don't own a Bible, keep this one. It's yours. Uh, Consider it a gift. Uh, We're out a couple of bucks, and and that's all right. We'll buy new ones. So um, please keep it. If you don't, uh, if you have one at home, bring it. Every single week, what we will be doing is diving straight into God's Word. We don't make any kind of excuses about it. We will be unpacking it through the book of James, verse by verse by verse by verse. So you might as well bring it and, and open it up, and let's study it together because God's word is what shapes us is what changes us and we believe that when we encounter God's word we have an encounter with a living God God's word is living and active and it penetrates our hearts so bring it we're going to be in it every single week James chapter 1 we're going to I originally thought we were going to tackle the whole rest of the chapter but 
There's just too much truth in there, so we're only going to get around to three verses. This is going to be a long, long journey, by the way, but it's going to be a good one, okay, I, I promise. I, I had this bigger plan, but then I got into the first three, and I just thought, Lord, there's, there's no way we can get beyond these three today. So we're going to do three, um, James chapter 1, verse 19 through 21. So before we open God's word, let's take a moment, let's just pray together. God, I thank you that, uh, um, well, I just thank you, God, that you call us to something bigger and better um, than what we already know, and that even the, our lives, and we think we're doing our best, still fall so short of what you have for us. And Lord, we only um, can move forward because of your grace and your love. We can only be um, closer to who you've called us to be because you draw us. And so, Father, I pray that, that in the middle of our study this morning, in the middle of opening our, your word together, you would, would begin to challenge us and call us to something greater, something bigger, that you would draw us to that. That we would move beyond a life of incon- inconsistency and into a life that says, God, I, I want to live an authentic inside and out. A life that's consistent with what I say about you. It backs it up with how I live. Take a moment in your own heart and just whatever other issues you have going on. And we've all got them. I mean, the truth is we've all got them. Whatever other issues, burdens, struggles, whether they're physical or emotional or spiritual, just kind of whatever. Just ask God to remove those this morning. That you might just be unhindered as you come face to face with his word, just take a moment and pray for yourself. Just pray that God would teach you. And pray for someone around you. Pray uh, that God would move in their lives. As I say, be in the habit of praying for other people. Just, even if you've never met them, just pray for the people here that God would move in their hearts, stir their lives. God, we, uh, we lay our lives out before you. We thank you just for these short moments to gather here and open your word together. And Lord, we confess that a lot of times we take for granted that this moment to gather in this place, in a public place, and, and open your word together. And we remember this morning our friends in China um, and other countries around the world that don't have this freedom, that are huddled together in, in small corners um, with one Bible. Um, Father, risking their lives, studying your truth. And God, uh, help us understand the perspective that sees truth in all things through Jesus Christ. Lord, we lay this out at your feet. We're gracious. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, James chapter 1, verse 19. We're going to look at a whole three verses today. So, um, this is, this is the, these are these verses. My, the, the title is Listening and Doing, but we're not really going to get into that part today. It's farther down, so ignore that. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For a man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all the uh, moral filth and evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. So I'm going to read them again because they are short, three short little verses, and we're, going to, we're really going to look at every kind of one of these little words this morning, and so I want you to hear it again because it's really a powerful piece of truth, okay? My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For a man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, rid, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you 
So the backdrop that we opened up with is this, this backdrop of struggles and trials and temptations. It's what James talked about in chapter 1 in the very beginning and what carries over to our, our understanding now is that when we're faced with trials and struggles and temptations, how we live makes a difference. And James kind of quickly says, look, be slow to speak or quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to become angry. In other words, what we say, what we don't say and how we treat people, those things matter. Now, that's not a surprise for most of us that are familiar with a life that follows Christ or familiar with Scripture. Those truths are pretty kind of prevalent throughout Scripture. What we say and what we don't say and how we treat people, those are are really important things. But if we unpack these at a little bit deeper level, we'll see that James is doing something very significant here. Because in the middle of trials and struggles and temptations, these things are not our natural response. When you think about that when you're facing struggles and trials in your life and your natural byproduct because of your worldly inclination is going to be stress, anxiety, and fear, being quick to listen to other people and slow to speak and slow to become angry, those are not natural responses. Our natural responses are actually very different. And what James is saying is in the middle of struggle in your life, how you live, how you treat people, what you say should bring glory to God. And he says that you should be quick to listen. Which is a very interesting concept because scripture is really filled with the idea that, that listening and hearing and understanding are really closely linked. Okay, 14 times in the New Testament, Jesus says, those who have ears, let him hear. What he's saying is those who have ears, don't let them be able to audibly hear me. He's actually saying that they would hear and understand. The Greek word here for this idea of, of listening is really one of, of competence. So it carries with it the picture of saying, you know, when we listen, we have to hear. And those of you that have been in dating or marriage relationships recognize very quickly that there is a big difference between listening to your spouse and listening to your spouse, right? There's a huge difference. I could hear what you say, but I am not hearing what you say. And that's what gets most people in relationships in trouble anyway, is that I hear your words, but I don't have any idea what you're talking about because I'm either not listening or you're talking crazy, right? And so that kind of separation from hearing and understanding is a massive deal. And what James is saying is he's going, listen, your natural inclination when you're facing struggles and trials and temptations is not going to be to listen to people, right? It's going to be that want people to listen to you. So think about it. When you face struggles and concerns, the first thing that we want is I need someone in my life to vent to, to air these things to. I need to someone to listen to me. My first inclination is not going to be to listen to somebody else. But what James is kind of saying in these two things, quick to listen and slow to speak, is really this. One of the hallmarks of following Christ or a hallmark of a Christ follower is that other people come first all the time. We see it in the life of Jesus. Other people come first all the time. Our natural response to those struggles and trials is not going to be to say, well, let me listen to what you have to say. See, a Christ follower, someone that puts other people first, takes a moment and shares in the, in the joys and the struggles and the triumphs of other people. There's nothing that shows someone that you care and that they are valued like listening, I mean with understanding, like listening and hearing them when they speak to you. Taking a moment out of your life and just listening to their needs. Now, you've got to ask yourself, am I a person that people talk to, that they share things with? And if you're not, you might want to ask yourself why, because there's probably a reason. Is our first response to say, man, I want to be a, a listener of people. I want to understand people's needs and their heartbeat. I want, to, I want to listen to their triumphs. Because usually what goes hand in hand with that, that sort of listening thing is, is this, 
this other piece which James says, which is slow to speak. So if you partner them together, and they obviously go together, when we're quick to listen and slow to speak, it means that we're paying attention to the people in our lives. We're giving them all that we are. And in a moment when we should be demanding things for ourselves, I mean, look, I am struggling. I, I just need you to listen to me for once. Our first response should be, no, I want to know, be a part of your life, that I'm quick to listen and slow to speak. And the funny thing about all this, as I'm standing up here saying all this, is that this is coming from the guy who, whose regulator never seems to work. And your regulator is that little piece in your brain that tells you what's probably, what you probably should say and you shouldn't say. It's an imaginary piece that exists in all of our minds. And mine is on a five-second delay all the time. And I spend most of my time going, oh, no, after that had already come out, Right? The reality is, is that all of us have got to work on this sort of slow-to-speak thing where we're just going to process the things that we're going to say before we say them. And what James is saying is that, listen, how you speak to people and how you listen to them, it matters. It matters. Why? Because those are areas of your life that can glorify the Lord. When you listen to people and you value them and you, sh- and you show them that they are loved without just sort of pouring your story out on top of theirs, You're showing people that they matter and they care, and it's a way to bring glory to God. And this is an interesting piece, because what James is saying, when you face trials, struggles, and hurts, your first response should not be about you. See, James is saying that your life on the outside, how you live, matters. So we're, we're quick to listen, we're slow to speak, and he goes on to say, and we're slow to become angry. Now, this is a really interesting place for this verse because when these Christians in these, in these early first century churches were facing persecution, you were literally facing death every day. And not just for yourself, but for your entire family. You were facing extreme, extreme persecution and struggle. And James says that as followers of Christ, we have to be slow to become angry. Now, what James is not saying, and I think one of the popular kind of misconceptions in Christianity is that anger is a sin. Anger actually isn't a sin. In fact, Paul in Ephesians 4.26 says, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Because there is a place in the Christian life for correct anger. Because there are things in this world that should stir our soul and our heart to, to frustration and to anger and to kind of furiousness. When we come across child sex trafficking or slavery or oppression, When we come across those kind of things, they should stir our soul to the point of anger. So how does anger begin to to move into the category of sin? How do we, what are the warning signs? What are those areas? And and I thought a lot about this because I thought there's a really fine line between anger that's, that's maybe biblically justified and anger that turns into sin. And I think all of us have no clue where that line is because we live in all kinds, we fly over it back and forth. And, and so I spent some time really trying to think about, from a biblical standpoint, what is the difference from when anger becomes righteous and when anger is sin? And I thought I'd mention just a few things because I think they're important. I think they apply to our lives, how you treat your spouse and how you treat your children, how you treat your friends and your coworkers. And, and that's this. Anger is, is sin or it makes the move to sin when it is self-centered, when it's about you. Okay, so when you find anger, anger in your life about something that has to do with you, it's usually sinful. In other words, how you treat me makes me angry. It's about me. It's self-centered. It, it drives me um, to a sinful state. When it is self-centered, when it circles around me, what people do to me, how they treat me, how they speak to me, when it circles around me, anger is usually driven into the sinful category because life is not about you. Jesus tells us that plainly. Right? 
The second thing that we see where anger moves to sin is when it doesn't glorify the Lord. Anything that doesn't glorify the Lord and brings about anger, sin. I mean, now this is a big one because the truth is that when you think about that last fight you had with your spouse, I mean, you know, that one, the one that you don't really remember that happened that did, that one, that anger, that, that kind of ferociousness, that kind of language, those kind of things, were they glorifying to the Lord? And the moment they become non-glorifying to God is the moment they move into sin. The moment your anger moves you to a place where you're not glorifying Jesus is sin. And that's the easiest one to identify is, God, is my reaction right now glorifying you? So if it's selfishly driven, if it's not glorifying the Lord, or as we read in the, or as I told you in Ephesians chapter 4, if it's allowed to linger. So Ephesians 4.26, Paul says, you know, let the sun go down while you're still angry. And your anger does not send let the sun go down while you're still angry. In other words, if we allow anger to simmer, to linger, it becomes sinful because then it turns into resentment and resentment isn't glorifying to God. When we let anger and frustration simmer and we kind of refuse to forgive people, refuse to move on, or refuse to deal with usually what's our own sinfulness that's causing that anger in the first place, usually has nothing to do with anybody else but your own lack of dealing with your own sin. When we allow those things to linger, they turn to resentment, and resentment is a disaster. So James, or, uh, James is kind of telling us this. He's going, look, be slow to speak, right? Quick to listen and slow to become angry because what he's saying is, is that in the middle of struggle in your life, how you live makes a difference because how you live can glorify God. When people can look at you in the middle of a difficult time in your life, they can say, man, they still took time out to love me, to listen to me. In the middle of a time where I knew they were struggling financially, they gave this away. In the middle of a time where I know that that person had lost their job or they just recently lost a loved one, they took time to listen to my needs. Or in the middle of a time where our immediate reaction should be frustration, we get control of how our behavior and how we live. Because I don't know about you, but in my struggles, when I'm feeling pressure and anxiety and fear and all those things because I've allowed my worldly sinful inclinations to sort of guide my perspective, my first response is, is anger. It's, it's reaction. And what James is saying is that your actions and how you treat people and how you speak to people, they matter because they glorify the Lord. So James goes on to say this. He says, those things make a huge difference, right? For a man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. So he's saying, a man's anger does not bring about the glory of God, of who God created you to be. Therefore, now anytime in scripture you see the word therefore, it's always a linking word. It links the statement before to the statement after. So James is saying, because as a follower of Christ, you should be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. Because of those things... Get rid of all moral filth and the evil that's so prevalent. Get rid of the moral filth and the evil that's so prevalent. This verse is fascinating to me because it seems at first glance to come out of nowhere. So quick to listen, slow to speak, don't become angry. Because of that, get rid of the moral filth. In other words, clean the garbage out of your life. When I use the word garbage, I'm talking about those, those things, that moral stuff in your life that you know is killing you, that you know is eating you away, that you know is corroding your life. Those thoughts, those things, that media, whatever it is, they come in all kinds of categories. Their relationships, their, their selfishness, their whatever they are, even now as I'm talking about them, you probably know exactly what I'm speaking to you in your life. Those things in your life that you know are slowly killing you. Stop ignoring them 
and get rid of them. Because you and I, we really live well ignoring the garbage in our life. Because we'd rather live among the garbage than have to deal with getting rid of it. And we've become really good at stepping over and living around those categories in our life that we know are tearing our hearts out. We know that God is calling us not to participate, not to do, not to think, not to live that way. Not to even allow that thought to come into our minds. And we've created lives that kind of navigate a maze so that we can work around the garbage. Because we don't want to have to go to the effort and the trouble and the pain and the hurt that it would take to actually uproot those lives and clean house. I don't know about you, but I've been fascinated with that show Hoarders on on A&E or whatever it's on. I'm sure you've seen it. It's a documentary about these people that, that literally have a disease, an illness. And they, they begin to collect stuff, and stuff turns into trash. And, and, and the, the episodes, of course, are extreme, and you're watching these people live amongst things that are killing them. Whether it's, uh, you know, their own garbage, or their own trash, or their own stuff, or, you know, and they've got rodent problems, and all these things. And, and the reality is the lives that they're living, the very nature of who they are, the, the stuff around them, their un- inability, if you will, to clean out their lives is slowly killing them. And really, it's sad because they're sick and there's a disease there. And the things that they're collecting, the things that they don't want to have to deal with for whatever reason, whether it's psychological or it's some kind of physical attraction to whatever it is, those things that they allow to kind of collect and stay are the very things that are threatening their lives, physically, spiritually, and emotionally. And I really started thinking about that because I think our spiritual lives, I mean, most of us wouldn't say we're, we're, we're in that category of hoarders when it comes to sin and stuff in our lives, but our spiritual lives are really similar. These things don't happen overnight. We begin to uh, kind of indulge in this thing, this thought, this sin. We allow this thought and idea to creep into our minds and pervert the way that we think about ourselves, who God created us to be, the way we think about other people, whatever it is, whatever that struggle, that sin, that fear, that thing is, And it begins to grow, and over time, instead of getting rid of it and taking the steps that we need to, we just push it to the side. And that leads to something else. And the next thing you know, our lives are overrun with the things that are killing us. Slowly. And we don't pay attention until until it's choked us out. What James says is this. He says, get rid of the moral filth. And the evil that's so prevalent. He doesn't say, figure out a way to navigate around it. He says, take some drastic steps and get rid of it. And you and I have got to be people that decide that there's a time in our life that we're going to take some drastic steps to rid our lives of the resentment, the anger, the sin, this action, this behavior, this relationship, this whatever it is. Some drastic moves to rid those things of our lives. Because how I live matters. And the very things in our life, even as followers of Christ, can choke our life. Spiritually and emotionally and physically. And most of us have become very good at hiding those things. We just put, push them back to the dark corners of our heart. They come out every so often, whether it's every day or every other week or whatever, and they, they kind of run our lives and the enemy uses them to tear us up. And then we feel guilty and bad and struggling for feeling this way and thinking this thing about that person or whatever, allowing that behavior to happen again. And what do we do? We just push it again to the side. Because we would rather clean the house, right? We'd rather just sort of clean it, dust it, and put something over it than actually take the time that it would be to uproot those things and move them. 
Now, James is talking about that it, as followers of Christ, in the middle of these moments in our life, these struggles, these temptations, it's time to do some house cleaning. And not just the kind that makes things look good when the guests come over because you shove it all into the bed or the hall closet. But the kind of house cleaning that says, it's time to get rid of this thing. That it's got no place in my home anymore. And it never did. James says, get rid of the moral filth and the evil that's so prevalent. Do you see what James is doing? What he's doing is he's saying how you live on the outside, right? How you treat people, how you listen to people, um, how, you, how you respond with your behavior, your anger, how you live on the outside, and how you live on the inside, they matter. They matter in tremendous ways. Because a, a consistent heart, our life on the outside will match our life and on the inside. doesn't mean perfection. It just means that they match. And they're not a lie. That who we portray to be is who we really are. And sometimes that means we have to, to make an overhaul of the way that we live. And, and, and maybe we're not listeners. Maybe we've been all about people hearing my story because somehow it, it gives me an understanding that I'm important. And I want to be heard because I need the attention because I've got all kinds of other self-esteem issues. And, and even though I don't say those things out loud, I need an overhaul of how I treat people. I need an overhaul of my anger. I am a reaction person. Maybe, maybe you're sitting here saying, Trevor, I've got a temper. And I know it's driven by my own sinfulness. I need an overhaul of my outward life. Some of us are sitting here saying, my outward life, I, you know, it's, it's okay, but my inward life is killing me. See, an inconsistent life is one that says, Jesus, I love you, yet there's nothing in our life that reflects that. The things on the outside don't match the things on the inside, and they certainly don't match the, our desire to love Jesus. James says, look, how you live, what you say, how you listen, and what you do in the inside of your heart, are hugely important. They're massive. So rid yourself of those things. Why? James goes on to say this, last verse. Rid your life of those moral uh, filth and the evil that's so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. So rid yourself of these things and humbly accept who you are. To really understand who we are, we have to go back to something that I mentioned in week one. When James begins this letter, remember what he says. He says, I'm James, a servant of Christ. And what I mentioned in week one is that the word that James uses there is the Greek word doulos, which oftentimes our English Bibles translate to the word servant. But really what the word means is slave. But we don't use the word slave because we don't like what that word means from a historical context. It brings up all kinds of things that we're very uncomfortable with, and rightly so. So we dodge it by using servant, but really what the word is is slave. And what James is saying is, I am a slave to Christ. And what I went through in that first week, and I'll do real quickly, is simply this, is that you and I are slaves to sin. The Bible tells us that in John chapter 8. Every single one of us is a slave to sin. We have sin that is running through our lives and our veins. But because of God's extravagant, radical, amazing love, died on the cross, that if we surrender our life to Jesus Christ, we are purchased out of slavery. Right? 2 Timothy says that we have been bought out of slavery. So does 2 Corinthians 6 says that we have been purchased for a price. That we are no longer slaves to sin, but we are now slaves to Jesus Christ. It means that our identity, who we are, is slaves to Christ. We don't belong to ourselves, we belong to Jesus. In other words, my driving desire as a person cannot be to gratify myself. It's not about me and me getting mine and me finding pleasure in this world. As a follower of Christ, I do not have that desire to say, I have the right to the pursuit of happiness. No, I, have the, I, am, I am created to serve Jesus and to glorify him. 
And James says that I am a slave to Christ. And as followers of Christ, whether we like that term or not, we have to understand that we are slaves to Jesus. He bought us out of slavery and we've become slaves to him, which means our lives are for his glory. Our lives point to his truth. What James says is this, get rid of those things in your life and accept who you are. Who are you? Well, you've been bought. You are a slave to Jesus Christ. Now, this is really important because what he's saying is he's saying this. The word that's been planted in you, which is Jesus', Jesus truth, this truth, and these are for followers of Christ, this truth that's been planted in you, this is what saves you. No amount of moral cleaning of your life, no amount of not becoming angry, no amount of slow speaking and, and quick listening, no amount of ridding your life of that one kind of mountain of, of black garbage from your heart is going to save you. It's not going to happen. What James says is that we accept who we are, purchased at a price out of slavery into Jesus Christ. That is now who we are, and that truth is what saves you. Those other things that we do, and this is my whole point for this morning is this, the other things that we do, the slow to anger, the quick to listen, the, the, all those things, the ridding our lives of moral filth, are a response, a living response to what Jesus did for us. See, oftentimes we think that if I can just clean up this area, just stop acting this way, stop doing this thing, start treating people better, get rid of my anger, then Jesus will somehow be pleased with me, and he'll, he'll renew my spiritual life. And the truth is, that's a lie. Everything that we do should be a living response to the fact that God gave his life for us. Everything is a response to the grace. It will never get me closer to this. That's already taken care of. Jesus died, gave his life, that if we surrender to him, we are already united with the Son and been purchased out of sin and into freedom, which means my life is now free to glorify God. And my living response is that everything that I do in action, in deed, how I treat people, how I live, should glorify God because of what he did for me, not because of what he will do for me. Which means today, a life of consistent living says that Jesus, because of what you did for me, I want my life to be a response in every category to that incredible love. I want the way I treat people to be a response to that love. I want the way I listen to people to be a response to that love. God, I want the way I, I speak to my wife or my husband or my children to be a response to that love. God, I want my heart, those deep recesses that I don't like to clean out, I want this heart of mine to be a response to that love. And James is saying how you live on the inside and how you live on the outside our response to the word in you as a slave to Christ. It's a living response. That's what worship is. The worship that we do on a Sunday morning is a living response to what Jesus has done for us on the cross and through the resurrection. It's not a performance. It's saying, God, I give you all of this because of what you've done for me. Cleaning your life up will never get you closer to God. It will never fix that area, that hole in your heart, that weakness. The only thing that will fix that is you laying your life down and saying, God, I give up. Remember we learned in chapter one when we lack wisdom, and wisdom is the ability to be able to live what I already know. When I lack that, what do we do? James says, we go to God and we ask for it, and God will give it. It means that how we begin this process of ridding our lives of these things or living differently is to begin to lay our lives down and just say, Jesus, I can't do it. Here I am. And I lay my authentic heart out saying, I'm a mess, I'm broken, I'm sinful, I'm a disaster. Whatever it is, name them. God already knows it. 
You're not going to surprise him when all of a sudden in your prayer time tonight or tomorrow morning you say, God, I'm a sinner. Here's what I did, and I name it. God's not going to be shocked. He's like, I've been waiting for you just to say it. But sometimes when we audibly say those things, they become very real, so we like to pretend that we don't. But God already knows. Just say, God, I need to rid my life of this, so here it is, and just purge it. And then ask the God who gave his life for you to clean your house. Uproot those things and get rid of the moral filth. And the indicator on whether or not those things are really gone is going to be a life of consistency. My life on the outside and my life on the inside, they match. They match because they're a living response of what Jesus has done in me. The hard word for this morning is this, is that every single one of us, if you think I'm not talking to you, you know that's a lie. The reality is that every one of us has got some house cleaning to do. We need God to uproot some things in our life because there are things, there are language that we use, things that we say, things that we look at, things that we do, the way that we act, the way that we treat people, the way that we listen or don't listen, how we show love to our uh, people in our life. It all needs a makeover. It needs to be cleaned out. And the hard part this morning is realizing that Jesus is speaking to you and that it's time to step into an authentic life, a life that moves beyond consistency, inconsistency into who Jesus called you to be. This morning as we close in worship, I, I want to challenge you with this thought. Just ask God, ask God to show you what it is that needs to be cleaned out. I dare you. I dare you to say, God, as I'm singing today, I just want you to show me. Maybe you already know. Just say, God, show me what needs to be cleaned out. And then spend some time figuring out what it's going to take to make a drastic move and uproot some things from your life so that we begin to live in a consistent manner. A manner that says, Jesus, all this because of what you did for me. Let's pray.